Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the Brooklyn and Massachusetts of pre- and post-World War II for a tale of sibling strife that's as old as Cain and Abel. I recorded this interview live at the Kloster Library in Kloster, New Jersey, where they invited me to chat with an author at their Meet the Author series. They bring in authors every spring and fall, and it's a nice reminder that libraries remain not just vibrant places in the 21st century, but they're still relevant even in the age of Google. Joining me in part of the library where there's no shushing at all is Linda cohen Lloydman. She brings us the engaging, absorbing story of two very different sisters, Ruth and Millie Kaplan. Raised in Brooklyn, each carries a hope chest full of hurt and misunderstandings from their childhood, along with a few secrets. You always have to have a few of those. Although the sisters try their best to escape their upbringing, they're forced together again as adults at the Springfield Armory, where the arsenal of democracy gears up to supply the war effort. Among other things, they're building M1 Garand rifles, the rifle that General George S. Patton said won the war. Although many years have passed by the time Ruth and Millie have their reluctant reunion, marriages, husbands, and even children can't stop them from sliding right back into the sandbox of roles forged in childhood. Linda Cohen Lloydman weaves this tale of hurt feelings, estrangement, and siblings who are just running wildly different operating systems in The Wartime Sisters, a novel. It's the sophomore offering after her critically acclaimed debut, The Two Family House, a 2016 nominee for the Goodreads Choice Awards in Historical Fiction. Linda grew up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, before earning a B.A. in English and American Literature from Harvard College. She followed that up with a law degree from Columbia University. You can visit her at lindacohenloigman.com, follow her at lindacloigman on Twitter, or toss her a like at her author Facebook page. Her last name is Linda with a Y, Cohen with an H, and the last name is spelled L-O-I-G-M-A-N. Okay, now that we've arrived at the Springfield Armory, let's join Linda cohen Loigman at the Kloster Library's Meet the Author series and take our spot on the assembly line with the Wartime Sisters. Thank you all for coming. I know you really came to see this excellent author. I will be your voices, but keep in mind that after we're going to do a Q&A, so don't be shy because writing is so solitary, right? Like radio is it solitary. Is. I know. I never get out. I don't get out much. <laughs> and then when you send your book out into the world, it's yeah. like that first day of school and you want to hear from the people who are enjoying and interacting with your book child that it's telling you, hey, that made a difference in my life. So think of your questions for after if I don't cover them. And then you're going to do a Q&A. You're going to Absolutely. favor us with some answers. Absolutely. So that will be excellent. So I'm going to do this as if most of you aren't here, although you can make some noise so people know I'm not lying when I right. say that we're live out in the world. <laughs> but uh, other than that, you know, if you need to get up, if you need to cough, if, I usually say if your dogs bark, but I don't think any of you brought dogs. So I will start. I'm joined at the Kloster Public Library's Meet the Author series by Linda cohen Loigman, author of The Wartime Sisters. 
This is the strong follow-up to her 2016 debut novel, The Two-Family House. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. We have like a big full house. So we it's do. a very exciting Let meeting. them hear you. Yay! <laughs> okay. Everybody is pumped for this book for you, and it's great to see an author with a big smile on her face that is still new. You have that wow. same passion. You brought it. <laughs> no, but you brought that passion is young. I mean, your age doesn't matter. Your life doesn't matter. You can be a person who's very young who doesn't have that passion and you brought it here and it comes off the pages thank you and they said ap for instance associated press said it's hard to believe the two family house is linda cohen loigman's debut novel engrossing from beginning to end then i pick up the wartime sisters and you followed up so strong on it i read a lot of novels and i read a lot about the craft of writing fiction and i said Look at what this woman does. This is the first half page, which is the first print page of the book, half of its blanks, is chapter one. You know these two sisters right away. And you didn't have that sophomore curse that novelists talk about sometimes where am I going to be able to have another idea? What do I put into the next book? If your publisher tries to rush it out of you and you're just not ready yet, like Ghostbusters 2, if people remember. <laughs> Howard Ramis, they just said, come on, we want another Ghostbusters. And he never had a chance to really perfect it and to get all the timing right. And that's very much here like the wartime sisters. You could have fallen into that pitfall. So how did you avoid it? How did you jump over that sophomore curse and produce a second novel that was just as strong as the first? Well, thank you for saying that it <laughs> that the second novel was good, first of all. Um, it's hard. The first novel I wrote over five years, and I had been thinking about it for 10 years before that. And I wrote it mostly in a writing class at Sarah Lawrence College. I wasn't a writer. I was a lawyer beforehand. And I, it was a, an idea that I had. Well, my daughter's 20 now, and I had it. It came into my head first when she was six months old. So I had been thinking about it for a really long time. It had a lot of marinating time, like a really long time, like a very well-marinated steak. <laughs> and then what happens is if you're lucky and your first book does okay, then the publisher says, well, what's your second book about? And so I was lucky, and that was what happened. And I had different ideas for my second book. I actually had an idea for my second book that will be my third book. But the second book, it's different because I had a deadline for it. So whereas with the first book, I wrote it really for myself. I wrote it kind of thinking about my mom a lot on the memory of my mom. And I didn't really know that any of you or anybody at all would read it. And with the second book, when you have a deadline... It's a very different process. You have people in your head. You have to go faster. You have other people to please. I sold the second book without it being finished. So the first book was done, and then you kind of give it to people, and they say whether they like it or not. The second book was more of an idea. And so what happens is you have this idea, and the editor says, I like that idea. We want that book. Can you have it for us in a year instead of my five years, right? So that was already like a year. I don't know about that. And... Then you give it to someone, and it's not necessarily what they thought it was going to be based on the idea. So this second book, it took a while. You know, I gave it to my editor, and the first page that you're talking about, it, I didn't have that in the first draft. She lets me have most of the control. She's not, she's not an overly picky kind of editor. She doesn't line edit or, you know, go word by word and say, take this one out, put this one in. It's more big picture ideas. And so she came back to me, and she said she wanted more of certain things. That was the word that I remember the most, more. And I had to kind of read the tea leaves and figure out what she meant. And then I went back and I added a lot more of the Brooklyn scenes for those sisters. And that was when the book really felt, I needed more time. I can't write a book a year. I, I just can't do that. It, it takes me more time. So it really ends up taking two years or a year and a half to write the second book, which was still a lot faster than the first one. The thing that was in my head when I was writing it was that I didn't, I knew that the, the thing that people really liked about the first book was the, the family connection and that people could recognize their own family members in it and they could feel, you know, like everybody has somebody like this uncle or that relative. And I wanted to kind of bring that again with the second book. I wanted people to be able to recognize their own family stories in it. I think that was what helped me create another story that people connected with. At least that's what I hope I did. So <laughs> I said to you that it could almost be a self-help book, that the two-family house was obviously a very different story, but the wartime yeah. sisters 
you could have made this a self-help book because as I'm reading it, I'm saying, I can see people looking at their cell phones and saying, oh, hey, maybe I should call that sister of mine. Yeah. And I, I have two brothers who are seven and 10 years older than me. And I had this reflection myself where I say, when you're younger, you have all these things you do. You assume you know the other person. They're doing this because of this. And you have fights and you don't express yourself. And especially if you're a Greek American family, you don't, you know, your mother or your yaya will knock your heads together and make you eat something and sit down. But that's not really resolving what's happening yeah. for you, right? And then you get older and you talk to your brother. Like I talked to mine and my brother came to me one day, my niece Teresa's here, her father. Hi. And and she uh, he said, I'm really sorry about this thing that I said when our cat died to you because I worked at the animal hospital actually here in close to New Jersey. And he said, I remember I thought you were too fast to make the call to euthanizer. I didn't remember it at all. And yet he carried this that thought for sure that must have been what I was thinking. Well, people carry all kinds of grudges. And that wasn't a grudge, but it was like this thing that was eating at him, right? So people in families, you remember different things. Everyone has a different version of their family stories. And one of the things that I tried to do in this book was one of the themes that I wanted to explore was family roles. So like in this story, the sisters are very, there's the sisters, for those who haven't read it, the sisters are Millie and Ruth. They're very, very different. And not to make it too simple, but one is sort of the very smart one and one is like the pretty flighty one. And they're more, much more complex than that. But that is just for openers. That's how they could be divided. And when I was growing up, you know, I, I watched my mom and her two sisters, and they all had certain roles. And so my mom was the worrywart, always the worrywart. The middle sister was the optimist. And then the youngest one was 14 years younger. And she was the fun one because she was like the baby, and she was allowed to be more free. lighthearted and free, free right? Yeah. She didn't, didn't have parents on top of her the same way. And so she was the fun one and they got to, they would get together and these, there would always be the same patterns. So like my mother would tell everyone what she was worried about. <laughs> and then the middle one was the optimist, right? So she would have reasons why you shouldn't worry about it. And then the fun one would crack a joke and like she never worried about anything. But those patterns that you fall into, it, I used to wonder like, did my mother ever want to be the fun one? <laughs> like she was never <laughs> kind of allowed to be the fun one. And so it's like that, you know, your brother has this perception of, of how things were when you were younger, even if it's not from your child, even if it's from just five years ago, whatever it is. But you want to try to move past those things and move past the roles that you are assigned when you're young. And that's um, your question. That's yeah, one of your Yeah, that's one of my wants. questions. Yeah. One of the things I, I say a lot is, you know, if you're like seven years old and you spill cranberry sauce at Thanksgiving dinner with your relatives and everyone says oh, Linda, she's the klutzy one. She's so klutzy and you're the klutzy one. But like, what if I grew up to be a ballerina? And what if I was like super graceful and I was not klutzy at all? But those aunts and those relatives would still think of me as the klutzy one forever. And can you ever escape it? So that was one of the questions that I was thinking about writing this book. Can you escape those childhood roles? Can you move past grudges and kind of, you know, do those people who have known you the longest really know you the best once you're an adult? Are those really the people who know you? You started a chapter with the line from a poem, 1946, Sisters by P.K. Page. Yeah. She writes, they split each other open like nuts. Yeah. And I stared at it and I thought, do I just not know poetry? or Because <laughs> this is saying so many things at once yeah. to me, which is maybe what poetry does. Yeah. But why choose that? Yeah, so that's right in the very beginning of the book. So that poem, first of all, it's like the right time period. I don't know. I just, I came across that poem one day when I was writing the book. Sometimes when I'm writing, I just sort of look... I read a lot of poetry and I look for inspiration in that just to kind of, I don't know, sometimes to capture the things that I want to express, to capture the feelings that I'm feeling as I'm writing. And so I found this poem and it was in the 40s and it was the perfect time period. And that's the first line of it. The poem is just called Sisters. That's the title. And it says they split each other open like nuts. And I forget the rest of it, but it, it, it goes on to say they, they spin on separate axes. But that's just, it's such a violent painful image, right? They split each other open like nuts. But that's what my mom and her sisters used to do. There's nobody, I think, that can get to you and hurt you the way that a sibling can. But then there's nobody who can put you back together again that same way too. So my mom and her sisters were super close, but they would fight. And, you know, they, they would fight and they would make up. And I used to be, you know, that was back in 
the days of when like people really talked on the telephone. People don't talk on the telephone so much anymore. You text each other, but like they talked on the telephone and the telephone was in the kitchen and I used to wire to the wall. Yeah, wire to the wall. And I used to like <laughs> eavesdrop on all of my mother's phone conversations. <laughs> and they were half the time they were with her sisters. And there were three of them. So there was always one that they were mad at. So sometimes like they were mad at my mom and then my mom would be talking to her mom and I'd be like or but they were there was always somebody who had done something, you know. And I, I don't know, I read that line and I just think it's perfect. It's just a perfect line. Would make it like a great title for a book, but I and don't And you don't know. have a sister, right? I don't so. have a sister. And actually recently <laughs> someone Yeah, someone yeah. said to me, It's really good that you don't have a sister because if you had a sister, she would be so angry with you all the time because she would think you were writing about <laughs> the two of you. So it's good I don't. I have a brother though. I do have a brother. Yeah. And that that's nice that you got the voices of them. I bet when you're listening to them on the phone. You're listening to one side, but you can tell, and it shows in your dialogue, who she's speaking to yeah. right away, because they had such distinct personalities from what I read you talking about, what your mother's sisters were like, yeah. and even your grandmother, who said, everybody's yeah. from Brooklyn, right? Yeah, everyone's from Brooklyn. That's what she would say. <laughs> and then, and there you got it from your editor, right? right. More yeah. Brooklyn. Yep, more That's Brooklyn, what people want. Yeah. yeah. Although I was reading the book, and I got so wound up in it, I sent you a picture. I put it on Instagram on the subway. I almost missed my subway stop <laughs> and ended up in Brooklyn because I was reading the book, and I was really into it. But it would have been so fitting if you yeah. had been in Brooklyn. <laughs> the sign was enough, I think, of uh, the nacho of work. And the books are both on sale, by the way. Kenny from Books and Greetings in Northvale. There's a bunch of them outside. The first book, Two Family Houses in Paperback, and the new one, and you'll be signing them, yep, won't absolutely. you, for people? And since we mentioned that first page, you can read okay. the intro. Sure. This is the part that you gave by popular okay. demand, right? Yes. Okay. So this is just the very beginning of the book, but it really, um, you kind of know what's happening right away after you hear this part. Ruth was three years old when her sister was born. Like most firstborn children, Ruth assumed her younger sibling would be a miniature version of herself. She would have straight brown hair, brown eyes, and a soft, gentle voice. She would love books and numbers, and the two of them would be inseparable. It didn't take long for Ruth to realize her mistake. When Ruth's mother felt up to it, she invited a small group of friends and relatives to the apartment. Packed into the small front room, nibbling on kichel and sipping glasses of tea, the visitors stared at the baby like tourists in a museum. What do you call the color of those curls? Reddish like that. Isn't there a name for it? And my God, those eyes. Who knew eyes could be so blue? Kenahara Florence, one of the cousins, shouted, you finally got yourself a beauty. Ruth's mother was too distracted to notice the pitying looks her older daughter received from the downstairs neighbors, but Ruth had a glimmer of what the finally meant. That evening, Ruth complained to her father about the fuss everyone made. He patted her head and told her not to worry. This is life, Mamala. People like babies. When babies grow up, people lose interest. When I was born, did they say I was beautiful too? Absolutely, he said. Such a question. Her father's accent was more noticeable when he was nervous or excited. It was especially conspicuous, Ruth knew, when he lied. So this is a very strong, as I said, you can <laughs> tell what I mean. You know that right away. You know these sisters yeah. from your own life. You know that family story just from that. And isn't it great to have an editor that pushed you to write it? Because yeah. what did you start with? Yeah. What was your what was your first idea? I you started, start? well, I started with, it's in the book still. I just started with Millie first arriving in Springfield. I didn't start. And then I was going back to Brooklyn. So something like that was already in the book, but it wasn't the very first page. And then, then I decided to move it up and kind of start with that. So, and then I filled in more and more Brooklyn kind of. It was a tough edit because it was kind of like, throughout the book. It wasn't just change the end or do this. It was when she said to me she wanted more of a certain feeling. I knew the only way that I could do that was to go back and add so many more flashbacks of their childhood and all of the things that got them to that place of terrible resentment and, and anger and frustration with each other. So that's what I kept trying to do, just adding more and more of that. And you had so much of the Springfield Armory in initially because mm -hmm. that's yeah. your inspiration. So it's almost yeah. a character, just like in the two-family house, the building itself, the two-family house, is a character with small T's. Yeah. Is, you know, yeah. an H. Yeah, is it, You is. know, that's a character. So yeah. the Armory, I could see where you really wanted to be there, and then you have to embrace that. And as I said, it worked perfectly because you know who they are, and you wonder when they go through the rest of their life how they're going to work things out. How yeah. are they ever really going to be sisters? And that's the journey that you bring readers on throughout yeah. the book. 
it's interesting because you know you can never please like all of the people all of the time (laughs) so I think there are some people who really wanted this story to be more of a war story and then I read something someone reviewed it and said something that I loved which was that it's for people who want a little bit less war and a little more humanity because it's a home front story you know it's not about the war it's about the sisters and it came about in a funny kind of way because I originally really did not intend to write about the Springfield Armory at all. I was going to write about these sisters. And the two-family house was inspired from my mom's childhood home. But they moved to Springfield when my mom was 18. And they didn't like it there. They didn't like being there. And I wanted to write kind of that story. I wanted to write a story about sisters moving in transition, feeling like they were exiled to this place that they didn't want to be, feeling like they didn't fit in. And I wanted them to be at odds with each other. I knew that that I was going to have that. But the armory was just going to be a tiny little piece of the story. It wasn't going to be this whole huge setting. It wasn't going to be as much of the story as it is. And it wasn't even going to be set in the 40s. I was really going to set it in the early 60s or the 50s and 60s. And then I went there. Well, I started reading about it and researching it and listening to the voices of these women. There are a lot of interviews that you can listen to, recorded interviews of women who worked at the armory. And they're all online at, at the armory's website. And then I kind of, my focus shifted. And so it was like a funny process because at first I was really focused on the sisters. Then I got very absorbed with the armory and all of my research. And then it was like I wrote the story and then I had to sort of go back and refocus back on my sisters again, I think. And so I think that's how it sort of came to be. And I think that's sort of what my editor was trying to say to me. Like, I love the armory. The armory is great, but let's not forget how it started, how the story first came to you. And uh, you have some of those pictures on your website, don't you? I have the pictures on my website. I have pictures here. I I mean, (laughs) I can show you. I can, I mean, do you want a little history? I don't know if you want a little (laughs) history about the Armory, but so the Armory was, it was actually, it's much older than you think it is. It it started as an arsenal where they stored weapons um, during the revolution, the weapons that the French sent over. And then after the war, George Washington, you know, our first president at the time, decided that we needed an Armory. And so he commissioned it. I grew up 15 minutes from it. People would talk about the armory because it was such a huge thing in Springfield. And so many people had worked there when they were young. They had worked there during World War II. But I thought it was one building. I never thought it was a campus, but it really is a campus. But there are all these beautiful grounds. And there were women of all ages who worked there, the women's ordinance workers. And it was a great acronym because they called them WOW, you know, the WOW girls. When I listened to those interviews, people talked about living there, and they talked about these beautiful homes that they lived in, and they talked about tennis courts, like playing tennis at lunch, and a swimming pool. I was just totally flabbergasted, because what kind of armory has tennis courts and a swimming pool? It was like a park, and there were all these gardens and greenhouses. The Works Progress Administration hired all these gardeners to work there, and it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. And on the other side of the street is where all the factory buildings were. And then there was another, actually something called the water shops where there were even more factories. But I listened to all those interviews, all of the women with their very diverse jobs and their diverse backgrounds and different levels of education and coming from different socioeconomic levels. And it just seemed like there were so many interesting people that I could put in this story. But it was the grounds that really got me because when I finally went to visit and I saw them, it sort of confirmed what I was thinking, which was that it was like two separate worlds. So there was this park-like place with these beautiful homes. And then it was this, like, area where it was, they were making weapons for war. I mean, they were making guns. That's what the business of the armory is. So it's beautiful parks, and then it's war. And it was opposites. It was two sides. It was this juxtaposition of all this beauty and then all this kind of ugliness, if you think about it that way. And it was kind of like opposites like the two sisters. And then when I saw that and I kind of felt that walking around, I knew that I had to set the story there because it was this perfect place for conflict. Like what better place to put these two opposite sisters and then this weird opposite place and have each one of them sort of belong to a different side, a different world of the armory. So Millie, the beautiful sister, the frivolous sister is working in the factories and her sister lives on the other side and kind of has a job for a little while in the administration building, like in the billing department. But you know, it's all like They get to wear their jewelry there and they all dress up to go to work and everything. It's not like working on the factory side. So the the sisters inhabit the different worlds too. And so 
it was it was just the perfect place to put them. And there were rose arbors outside of the commanding officer's house and these hedges. It's just these beautiful grounds that when you see that, does it look like an armory to you? Like, not at all. So it was just fascinating to me. Did you do, because you described throughout when she's doing her job and you have a lot of metaphors for mm-hmm. the assembling of the of Yeah, the, parts. Of the trigger mechanism. Did yeah, you have to go do that? So I went to the armory a bunch of times. The curator of the museum gave me, let me see one of the M1 rifles. But in terms of figuring out how to put together a trigger assembly, I asked someone that I know who went to military school, someone I went to high school with, I just messaged him on Facebook and said, I really need to figure this out for a book. Do you know anything about it? I thought maybe he could walk me through it. And he gave me the best piece of advice, which I don't know why I hadn't thought of it, but I hadn't. He just said there's like a thousand videos on YouTube. So I went to YouTube and I was actually on a train from New York to Boston (laughs) visiting my daughter and someone was sitting next to me and I watched this guy strip a rifle and put it back together again over and over and over again. I think I watched it for like two hours and I thought that the person must have thought I was insane. Like maybe I was planning to like do something terrible. I don't know. I I was hoping that the conductor wasn't going to arrest me. But I I mean, I watched it for hours, not only on the train ride, but I mean, I looked up, I found diagrams of it and I, cause I really, and it, you know, when I describe it, it's not very much of the book. I mean, between describing what Millie does at the tables and then another scene where she, the commanding officer shows her how to take a rifle apart and put it back together. I mean, it's not even a page in the book, but let me tell you, like I, it took me hours and hours and hours to get all of that right. It was, it was tough, but it was something it needed to be in there. You know, the language had to be right. So far, I haven't gotten any emails from any angry readers telling me that I did that wrong. Because you do, you know, if you do things wrong in a book like that, when it's historical, you lose people's confidence. People will write to you and tell you when you get something wrong, which I don't mind. I mean, I appreciate it, but I'm just like praying <laughs> that, that I didn't get that, that wrong. So I'm, I'm hoping. So far, so good. Yeah. Well, it is rich in historical detail. It's actually a quote by Alison Richmond, author of The Velvet Hours. You have some language in there that some people will be familiar with from that era, but I always find that interesting how you choose it. And one word that jumped out at me is you said tarpaulin, which today we would just say tarp because it's short for it. I always watch for those things because that's hard. You could show all your research. You could have you could have used that scene. You spent hours and hours researching that mechanism, and yet you only used it for a little bit of the book. Yeah. So how do you decide what is the right amount of slang and period language to use so it's not overwhelming people? Because for that same reason, people will put down the book. It's really tough. Language has to be accessible. I've talked to a lot of writers who kind of, who, there was one, I don't remember who it was. It was an author who who was writing a book about Scottish people and there was a word that that she used and she got a lot of complaints but that was the accurate word but sometimes you actually have to use the wrong word because it's the word that people expect and it's the word that people want so sometimes you have to give people what they want my book it wasn't as tough as all that but you can't sacrifice accessibility for accuracy you know there's a very fine line and it's the same with research and kind of the the amount of details that you add with research also. You know, I wanted to describe the armory in such a way that you could picture it, that you could see what I'm seeing. But if I go too far, you're just going to get really bored. And I'm going to get really bored too writing about it. So you have to be careful. And there are definitely, there there are a lot of things that I cut. You know, you write it all down and kind of you have to, you have to go back and cut things. There are research rabbit holes that I went down like completely like a lunatic, a total lunatic. I, I got completely obsessed with the mail at the armory because I have one scene where Millie gets a letter. And when I walked around the armory and I saw the houses and I said to the curator, there are no mailboxes here and there are no mail slots in the doors. How did they get their mail? It was such a huge place. Was it just like a zip code? Did you just send mail? Like, I'm sure there was a zip code or some kind of mail code for just the armory, but that was the business. So there were, at most, at any time, 30 officers living there. So it was not that many residents ever living there. So what about them? How did they get their mail? Did it just go to the main armory mail room? Did someone deliver it? To, like, I, I, you can see I'm already, like, going on and on about the mail. <laughs> I'm still obsessed with it. And so the curator checked and the historian from the Springfield Museum, everyone was checking until finally I just realized like I do not need to trace the letter from like <laughs> the mail, but I didn't need, it just didn't matter. But you know, you have to kind of let go. So sometimes you have to let go. 
So I let go of that, but you can see it. Not entirely. <laughs> Still slightly obsessed with it. Especially now because you're yeah. on a time limit with the right, second one. Yeah. The first one, you're free. You're right. easy. Yeah, exactly. I might not even ever sell this book. Right. I'm going to put right. it in a drawer. Yeah. Now it's a job. Yeah. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. I mean, yeah. I liked having a deadline actually for the second one because the second book is kind of something that freaks you out a little bit. It is daunting because you, you worry that no one will ever read anything again. So if I had been just left to my own devices, I might have taken five years to write the second one too. So having a deadline was actually probably really good for me. You're enjoying my conversation at the Closter Library's Meet the Author series with Linda cohen Loigman. She's the author of The Wartime Sisters. That's her new novel, a strong follow-up on the two-family house. You can check out her website, which is where you can see some of these pictures and see links, and it's really a nice website, lindacohenloigman.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Linda C. Loigman, and also she has a Facebook page, right? Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm, I think I'm probably most active on Facebook. Okay. I do try to do stuff on Twitter, but you have to be kind of clever on Twitter. I'm not really that clever. <laughs> <laughs> Save it for the book. Save it for the book. You only have so much. Yeah. Well, you have some people here today. Susan, yes, right? Yeah, Susan is here. Yeah, you I'm so, so excited. She's my so, Facebook friend. Yeah. This is the first time I'm meeting her in person today. Yeah. So she was the first exciting. one here. This room was empty, yeah. and she was <laughs> sitting right in the very first chair to try to make sure. She's yes. like, I, I feel bad getting here early. And I said, never feel bad about that. It's great to see people passionate about books and see a library that's still thriving in the 21st century when it wasn't. 20 years ago, they were telling us the internet's going to kill libraries. Well, if there's still reasons you need to go to libraries and bookstores, as we mentioned, the bookstore where they're selling the book and people are adapting. Absolutely. And they were nice enough to host us here, for instance, for this. You can see those photographs of the Springfield Armory online, but you can go and look through books. And I always have found libraries to be magical, so I love it that you're going there and doing it. And by the way, for those listening who aren't staring at the cover of the book, that last <laughs> name is spelled... L-O-I-G-M-A-N, and it's Linda with a Y, right? It is Linda with a Y. Yeah. How did like, that? Like, I don't know. My mom picked that. I don't know. <laughs> I saw the eyebrow go up. Yeah, it's just like Linda Carter, you know, from Wonder Woman. <laughs> I would always, when I was little, that's what I used to say. But I think there aren't very many Lindas my age. It's a, it's a little bit of mm -hmm. an older name. So I don't know any other Lindas my age, to tell you the truth. I'm going to quote Fiona Davis, who we chatted with about her novels, The Masterpiece and The Address, Interviews that are available at our iHeartRadio channel, iTunes, wherever you're listening now, unless you're in this room, in which case <laughs> you can do it on your phone or download it on iTunes, do it in your car if you have the iHeartRadio app. She calls the Wartime Sisters, quote, a riveting tale of sibling rivalry and the magnetic dissonance of family, filled with heart-stopping truths that are both tender and wise. It's one of my favorite books of the year. Linda Fiona Davis, as she does in her novels, chooses a perfect phrase there that I love, magnetic dissonance, because how do you go about balancing that conflict with family? Family is always connected, and people tell you this in a million ways, and yet none of us really believe it. And on some level, we think, well, that my family doesn't define me. My family is, I had a fight with my sister. I just don't get along with her. And this is what happens here, you know, with Ruth saying, well, I'm going to move far away, and I'm, I'm going to reinvent myself. No one will ever know that I have this sister, that I become invisible when she walks in the room. But yet you have also that magnetism that draws you together yeah. that you can't escape. And you alluded to that a little bit earlier about how you can overcome those things if you make that effort. And yet, in this book, you made us root for both of them. You made us see from inside each of their minds what they're thinking and you want to do. As I said, you know, if they had a yaya, they would smash their heads together. <laughs> they had their grandmother that would say, yeah. no, you do this. Somebody with some yeah. wisdom to, and it may well not have worked, but at least somebody would have. You want yeah. to do it as you read because you like them both, which isn't easy because we tend to root for one person or the other. We're conditioned to read books and think this person's the protagonist. This is the horrible sister who's lording it over, but that's not the case here. How did you balance it so that you could really like both of them? The structure has a lot to do with it. The book is structured. It's told from four different points of view. So it's the two sisters and then it's two other women at the armory. And one of them is the wife of the commanding officer. Her name is Lillian. And the other is this great sort of lighter character, Arietta, who is a singer and a cook at the armory. But the two sisters are two of those main four voices and probably have a little bit more airtime in the story than the other two. I did it that way because I do want you to keep going back and forth. I want you to like be team Ruth and then be team Millie and then be <laughs> team Ruth and then be team Millie because there are always more than two 
or three or four sides to every story. People can behave badly, but there's usually a reason why they're behaving badly. And so I want, I think in the beginning, a lot of people tell me they really root for Ruth because they feel badly for her. They feel like she's getting the short end of the stick and Millie just seems whiny and kind of frivolous. And then later on, they just switch, you know, and then they're kind of team Millie for a while. And then they go back and they realize, well, Ruth had reasons for doing what she did. Millie had reasons for telling the lies she told. And I think that the, the structure really helps me to do that, to get into each one of their heads and to have you see, if you go back and filter it through each one's individual point of view, it helps you as the reader to understand why they've taken some of the actions that they've taken. Because you couldn't have done that with a single omniscient It's harder. It's harder, harder when you do it. Yeah, it's harder when you do it that way. Yeah. And I really, I did that in the two-family house also. But with the two-family house, I had been thinking about the characters for such a long time that they were these four adult characters that had totally different voices in my head. And when I went to write the story, I tried writing it in third-person omniscient. And it was a waste. It was like I had all this material that I couldn't use because I had... Mort's voice and Rose's voice and Helen's voice and Abe's voice. And so I just very quickly came to the path of writing it from alternating viewpoints. And with this story, again, like I, I was tinkering, like, but it, it made the most sense. For me, when I'm a reader, I love it when books do that. A lot of times you kind of might skim through a book and be like, oh, I'm, I can't wait till the next, you know, part told by so-and-so, right? Like, I don't know if anybody reads Game of Thrones, <laughs> the Game of Thrones books, but I've read all the Game of Thrones books and they're told from the different characters' point of view. But there are so many characters that you completely forget who they are. But I would always get excited when it was a certain character that I liked. You know, So I think if you only have four characters, you kind of stay excited, hopefully, as you read through the book. It makes for a quick read. It makes for a sort of more accessible read, I think, if, you, if you're switching points of view. And you begin to look at them and say... I'm looking obviously through Ruth's point of view and it's almost again like a friend or like mm -hmm. your sister yeah. is telling you, you know, I'm telling you that Susan arrived so early right. that I think right. that that's right. kind of, yeah. uh, why did she come so right. early? I'm right. suspicious of yep. her. Yep. And then I talk to Susan <laughs> and, and Susan's like, all oh, those people arrived late. I don't trust them. Right. And, they're, yeah. and they're like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Yeah. And then you, at yeah. a certain point, <laughs> I don't Poor think that. Susan, Susan I'm so glad you arrived. She's getting called out on, on all kinds of things. <laughs> she's never going to sit in the front again. She's like, your mother's sitting right there. I'm not going to oh, use God. my mother as an example and I want, <laughs> I want Maida to invite me back yeah. but uh you have to have that feeling where you step back then through the course of the book and you've seen it by then you've been both of them so then yeah. you start to say gosh I hope that they make it you know because yeah. it's it's a love story between sisters yeah. and you see they're both good people and you want them to have that sister relationship and they both want to have yeah. it well you feel their pain you know I think you you feel and even if you don't have a sister and I don't have a sister we all have people in our lives you know who you just knock heads with, right? Who just, and you don't want to necessarily, and you can't let go of it really, but you want to make things right. Or you sometimes maybe you love to hate them too much. You know, <laughs> you don't, you don't want them to be out of your life, but you want them to come together. You root for all of them, hopefully. And did you think that both of them would be able when you started writing to be so different from your characters of your first book? How did you go about going over and over a character so that they became distinct. Like I picture it like woodworking a little bit where, you know, you, you start out if you made one of those little cars or something when you were a yeah. kid and they made you making shop glass. At first, it's just a block the of wood. The Boy Scout, like yeah. pine derby car. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't pick you for a Boy Scout, but <laughs> well, yeah, you, know, you had a brother. You said. I had there a brother go. and a son, yeah. you know, so yeah. the pine derby, I'm very familiar with the pine derby car. Yeah, but how um, do you go through that to decide how you're going to yeah. make them distinct? For me, it takes time. Some people can create a character right away. And for me, it takes time. I, I think I needed to sit with them for a long time. I need to come up with all the reasons why they do what they do, try to feel all the different things that they're feeling. There are all kinds of exercises that people do. I kind of do it all in my head. But I know people who have taken writing classes, and so some of the exercises would be, you know, have your main character write a letter to their family. Have your main character write a job application. Have your main character write a eulogy for their parents, you know, have your main character do all these things so you can get into the mindset of that person. And for me, it's just kind of driving around. A lot of it happens driving around in my car. I'll be driving around in my car and just things come to me and I just think, what if? It's always what if, you know, that's the question always. What if she this? And what if there was a woman who had this thing happen to her? And what if, 
like, you know, the neighbors who Millie takes care of. You know, what if it was this girl and everybody only cared about her looks, but she ended up helping this neighbor who is sick and helping take care of her little boys and a very sick woman who's dying of, we don't know what she's dying of, but she's dying, and her little toddler boys, nobody's going to care what this girl looks like, right? Nobody is going to say, oh, you're so pretty, you're, you're, we're going to give you special treatment. No, she's, she's helping them in this terrible time, and all they care about is that she's a compassionate, kind person, and all the little boys care about is she's somebody to play hide-and-seek with or play marbles with or whatever it is. And so those people were good people to put her in a scene with and to put her in contact with because then you can see the other side of her. Then you can see what I'm trying to convey, which is that there's more to her than this pretty face and there's more to her than the fact that she doesn't do her homework and there's more, you know, she has this compassionate side to her. And so it's putting people in certain situations with other kinds of people. It's having certain things happen to them. It's kicking them when they're down and seeing how they react. Someone said, I don't know who it was, or it, maybe it was like in some writing book, I don't know, that when you have driven your main character like to the lowest point and she's just down as far as she can go, just give her one more kick. <laughs> like, don't, not, not, don't be easy on her then. Like, that's the time to really like push her down the stairs and then see how she bounces back. So that's <laughs> kind not. of, you know, that's, <laughs> I know that sounds terrible, but, but you have to do things like that. And that's how you find out who your characters are. But it takes time. I'm, I mean, some people can do it quickly. I can't do it quickly. It takes me a lot of, it takes just, I need to sit with them to do it. Nobody's going to walk out of here down the steps. You realize <laughs> <laughs> I promise not to push any real people, only imaginary people. By the way, I should have asked this earlier, but did you spill cranberry sauce? Was that an actual personal I did not. Example? No, okay. no, I did not spill Nobody ever sauce. called you a klutz. No. no, but I did get hit with a baseball when I was little. Um, like Marsha Brady. That was a football. Well, yeah, I was little and I was at this picnic. <laughs> I was at my dad's sister's house and it was like a 4th of July picnic baby. And I was, I had to be like six years old and I was in the yard and all the older boys were playing baseball and I just got like whacked in the eye with a ball and they took me to the hospital. And I remember crying and crying and crying and crying and they took me to the hospital. But like I was the crybaby after that. <laughs> like all the boys... You know, all the boy cousins, I was the crybaby. But and you had a legitimate like, thing I to got hit with a baseball, but they don't remember that part. <laughs> right, I remember yeah. that part. They just remember kind of that I was the crybaby. You know, so then yeah. you have to prove that you're not the crybaby anymore. Yeah, they weren't so. your point of view character. They weren't no. in your head. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and like and like you said, that's so much a part of the book, these things imprinted on us as children. My mom gave me this ginger candy, and I thought of my godmother, my aunt. I was a little kid, and I choked on a lemon candy. Oh, gosh. And my God, then, you know, you're approaching 20, and it's still, well, don't, don't have those. <laughs> don't give them a candy. It's like, I think I've mastered it by now, you know, and it just went through my head now. Oh, my God. Just, yeah. Now, my mother was always really afraid of of cherries. She never wanted me, like, if if she bought cherries at home and I was growing up, she would always make me promise not to eat them when she wasn't home because she thought I might choke on a cherry. But, and even as an adult, and even when I had like children, don't give them cherries when you're not home. Like that was, you know, so I, she would have appreciated the yeah. candy story. For yeah. Sure. And then, you know, and then from my point of view too, as a kid, you're like, just give me the candy. And now I yeah. realize probably scared the heck out of her that she almost yeah. just tell my mom, sorry, the kid's blue and on the right. floor. Yeah. And you know, uh, <laughs> so these are all different yeah. points of view. We have time for one final question before we do our Q&A here with everybody at the Closed Door Libraries Meet the Author series. You've gone from that background in law to being a best-selling novelist. What advice do you have for readers who may be inspired by your work and decide, you know, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to tell my own family story, or at least let it inspire me to tell a story that's on the level here of the two-family house, those aspirational people. What's your advice? You have to just sit down and write. I would definitely say the thing that helped me was taking a class. So I had that story in my head for all those years. I hadn't written fiction ever. And then I turned 40 and a few, like my mom passed away. I turned 40. It was like this series of events where I thought if I don't try to do this now, I'm never going to try to do it. And so I, I started taking a class at Sarah Lawrence. And I would say take a class find and find people, find other people who want to write. You know, if you find a writing community, then you start thinking of yourself as a writer. And that's really an important thing because 
you know, you can like kind of sit at home and type some words into your computer and you have 20 pages or 30 pages or 40 pages, but you don't want to tell anyone and you're sort of embarrassed and it sort of feels silly to say I'm a writer or I'm writing a book because you sort of feel like who am I to say, or at least I felt that way, who am I to say that I'm writing a book? But you have to kind of keep doing it and keep going back and keep talking about writing and keep thinking of yourself that way that's really all that I did. I just kept at it until it was done. And I wrote it, you know, like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't have to take you a day. It doesn't have to take you a week. I mean, it took me five years, but I did it. And it was only after that book was actually in book form like this that I started calling myself a writer. So now like if I'm in a taxi or something or somebody that I don't know and they say, what do you do? Like I always like take a deep breath and I say, <laughs> I'm a writer, like which feels so much better than saying, I'm a lawyer because I didn't like being a lawyer. <laughs> and I still kind of feel sort of funny when I say it. But I keep telling myself, like, I have to keep saying it. I have to force myself to say it because you have to believe it. You have to believe in yourself and believe in your story. And you have to just write. You're a writer if you write. If you don't write, you're not a writer. You're a thinker. Thinking is very important. Thinking is a big part of my writing. But you have to actually write. So just write. I don't know. <laughs> so you, you went from people being afraid you would sue them to people being afraid you're going to put a character based on them in your book and throw them down know. the stairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm never going to live down that throw them down the stairs line with you, am I? I don't think I will. Well, there's no, there's no stairs <laughs> leaving no the stairs library. Here. Okay. So that's good. We're, we're on, the, on the main floor. Linda cohen Loigman, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you to everybody here at the Closer Libraries Meet the Author series. Thank you, Susan, for being a good sport. She's had Yay. this big smile the whole time, so I feel okay being mean to her. Yep. I know you're going to sign her book, yep. right, yep. Linda? Yep. Ex yep. Extra special got for, a for got being a, a good sport. Yeah, and they took a picture together. See what you get when you arrive early, everybody. <laughs> so that was great. I really did enjoy the Wartime Sisters. I thank hope that you. that came across. I wish you the best of luck with this book, and I know you don't think you can do another one in a year's time, but I bet it's going to start pouring out faster and faster, at least it's, I hope I'm so. I'm forcing myself. Yeah, I'm sitting in the chair and writing. So. Okay, good. Thank you so <laughs> Thanks, much. Thanks, everybody. And thank you, yeah. everybody. Thank you. So if you guys have questions. Yeah, go, you can, you you can know, stand up yeah. there or you can sit here. Oh, I'll sit here. Oh, you can stand. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. First of all, I love your book. Thank um, you. I have a sister, and it just connected. But because on the first book you said it took so long to get the story together, how did it feel when you your editor started pulling it apart and saying you have to make these changes and these and the same right. thing with the sisters? How did it so, feel? So yeah, real the first book didn't have very much editing. I have to say, like. And again, my editor is very big picture. So in the first book, there were kind of four points like that she had. And so one of them was, let's go, I don't know if, if you guys have read the first book, but Rose is one of the main characters. And so when, when, I, when I first wrote the first book, I ended it with Rose leaving. And I didn't go back and revisit her in Florida and kind of give her this scene where she sends earrings back to her um, daughter. And, and so... And again, my editor didn't say, I want you to write a scene where Rose is in Florida. She just said, I want you to go back and give Rose some closure. So that, though, those, those are the kind of edits that we're talking about. So it's kind of like she puts a seed in my mind and then I have to figure out what to do with it. So there were four little things like that in the first book. So there wasn't that much editing. The second book was, again, not real specifics, but it was, I want to feel more of their rivalry. I want to feel more of what happened. And it wasn't this is how you're going to do it. I had to figure that part out. But that was hard. That was really hard. When I had my first conversation with her after I finished the first draft of The Wartime Sisters, it was hard. But I think it was hard because the first book had so few edits. So then when the second one had more, it was a difficult thing. But I actually, I mean, I would love, I would really love it if my editor... I guess maybe I would love it. Maybe I would hate it. I don't know. I, I feel like I would love it if she went through and edited even more specifically. But maybe I wouldn't. Maybe it would just drive me nuts. I don't know. It's an interesting process. I like the way that she does it because it gives me a lot of freedom. But it's not that easy because I have to kind of interpret what she's saying and figure out how to, how to get the reader there emotionally. She's always right. I feel like she's always right. It always makes it better, but I have to figure out how. So when I sent it to her the second time after it was edited, then I was holding my breath. 
And then she said, I cried and cried and cried. And then I knew I was good. Because that's like always my goal, to make everyone cry. <laughs> Somebody else? Yeah. There we go. Um, you said in your first book, it took you pretty much five years to write it. Yeah. All right, now the writing is done. How long did it take for you to actually get the book looked at? And yeah. So I was, yeah. Separate. Yeah, it is. I was really lucky. So I wrote that book. I finished it. I finished it in, it was like this, it was May or June, and there was a conference that Sarah Lawrence had, a publishing conference, and they invited a bunch of agents and editors to come, and you could have pitch sessions with them. So I met my agent there. I had three pitch sessions with three different people, and the person who became my agent was my last pitch session, and you had kind of like, you submitted pages ahead of time, 10 pages and a synopsis and different stuff. So she had everything, she read it, and she met me, and she said, I want you to send me the whole thing, send me the whole book. So that was June. I sent her the whole book in August, because I, then I was like, oh my God, someone's actually reading this? I really better look through it and like, you know, tighten it up. So I tightened it up on my own, however I did that. I sent it to her in August. And she called and said she wanted to represent me. So then I had an agent. But then she had to start sending it to editors. So she started sending it in September because nobody's really around in August. So she sent it in September and someone bought it. We had a sale by November. So that was November. But then I didn't, you know, then publishing is slow, right? So then in January, I had a contract for the book. But the book wasn't coming out until not the next January, but the next March. So it was a year and a quarter until from the contract and really a full year and a half from when they bought it to when it came out because it takes a long time. They edit and then they go through copy edits and then there's like cover designs and marketing, you know, trying to figure out how it's going to look. But they'll take care of that. They do all that. You can just dive into your next book. Well, no. I mean, you have edits and the copy editing you have to really go through very carefully. The copy editors are my favorite people. If you're like a book nerd, you all – like the copy editors are just the greatest. So the copy editors go through like line by line, word by word. So for instance, like in the two-family house, I had a scene. It's a funeral scene. It's November. There's a thunderstorm. And the copy – you get all these notes. Not just about comma, every comma, every semicolon, everything. It's a note and it says the – statistics for thunderstorms in the state of New York in the month of November are, you know, there. it's like only, it's a 17% chance that a thunderstorm would happen in November. Do you still want there to be a thunderstorm? Like that's the level of detail that they're going to. And it's so crazy, but it's so awesome when you think about it. Like part of me would just want to like throw it all in and just be a copy editor because it's like a nerd heaven. You could just research the most little trivial things. So there's that, right? So you get the whole book with things like that on every page. It takes you a while to go through it all and say yes or no or do different things with it. There was a whole thing about baloney in my book. They were saying baloney. Did I not want it to be pastrami? Like just like, like different things, like little weird things that they ask you about. So in the Wartime Sisters, I made up the names of a bunch of schools for people to go to, including like a military school that I called Farragut Academy. Because You know, like they were real names of real people, but they were not real schools. And so I think I like tricked the copy. The copy editor like was like thinking I was trying to trick him because he was like, was this a real place? Because I have not found any evidence. And like, and he's like checking all the schools. I'm like, no, I should have told you. Sorry. Should have told you. I just made that one up. So it takes, it takes a while. And then all the stuff. So like there's like the inside of the jacket, right? It makes a big difference how the book is presented, what the book is. So one of the things I realized with the two family houses, the biggest complaint that I got with the two family house was you read the jacket and it reads like it's a mystery. In the midst of a blizzard, in a two-family brownstone, two babies are born minutes apart, right? It reads like, now to me, I think, you know what happens when you read this jacket. Like, obviously, they have switched the babies. That's not a secret at all. Like, I figure you're going to figure that out from the second you read the prologue or the second you read the jacket. It's all about what happens afterwards. It's like it's a secret, but it's not a secret from the reader. It's a secret from the other people, the other characters in the book. But some people read this style of jacket and thought it was supposed to be a secret from them. So the people who did not like this book did not like it, I think, because they said, I figured out the, the secret in two minutes. <laughs> I was like, well, but you were supposed to. But you realize like how the setup and the expectations that you create, how important those are. So I was really, when it came to this book, 
I wanted to read that jacket copy. I'm not a book marketer. That's not my job, but it is my book. So I probably care more than anybody how it's going to come out. So there are things like that, that, that you have to pay a lot of attention to because nobody's going to pay as much attention to it as the author is. And you set up expectations and that's a big part of whether a book pleases readers or doesn't please readers if it is what they expected or it's not what they expected so it's a tough thing like the wartime sisters I think the people who understand that it's a family story really love it but there are a few people like I've gotten a few emails or whatever you know I thought it was going to be more about the war why didn't you go you know why why weren't we in Germany or France or England you know because it's called the wartime sisters I wanted the war but I love the title because to me it's like they're the sisters are at war and it's wartime, and it's the sisterhood of people working during wartime. It all makes sense, but some people will want something different. You can't please everybody. But there are a lot of things that you have to pay attention to that aren't just in the middle of the pages, that aren't just the guts of the book. Sorry, that was a long answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little different, actually. It's a little different. That's why, so the third book was going to be the second book. But my agent very wisely said to me when I told her about the third book and I had like 100 pages of it and I gave it to her and she said, I like this, but this cannot be your second book. And this was before The Two Family House came out. So The Two Family House was bought, but it hadn't come out yet because it takes such a long time. And she said, your readers will want something a little more similar to that. And I said, I don't have any readers. <laughs> I don't even have a book. <laughs> And she said, but you will. And so you don't want to just do something totally different because what if they don't follow you? Like you're just going to be getting them excited about your book and they're going to want another book. So actually my third book is started out really different, but it's morphed and it's it's a really fun book. It's set even further back. So it's it's I haven't quite figured out how to talk about it yet, but it has – a Jewish immigrant from the Ukraine and two Italian immigrants. And they all find each other in the north end of Boston in the early 1900s. So like around 1915. And um, the north end of Boston is just like such a great neighborhood and such an interesting place where just different streams and waves of immigrants came through. So Irish immigrants came there first and then Jewish immigrants and then the Italian immigrants. And we all kind of think of it now as like the North End, like where all the great Italian restaurants are. But it was a really interesting community. So they're all kind of there. And so it has a Jewish element the same way these other books do. And it has family elements. There's a, a set of sisters who don't get along actually at all. <laughs> um, but it has a little bit more romance than my other books. And it has a little bit of like a folklore kind of feel to it. So I'm excited about it. I hope that people like it. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> this was the press packet for the two family house. Oh, yeah. Is this idea one you're still working on? I don't mean to cheat uh, everybody. No, nope, no, no, no. Yeah. Sounds, so sounds that, a little. So that was how this book. Okay. This book. Went through a couple different things. This talks about a grandmother. Yeah. In the Wartime Sisters, I was going to have a grandmother figure. And you threw I her down the stairs, didn't you? I threw her down the stairs. <laughs> her, yeah. She didn't, she didn't really work. It's interesting. So I, when I first started writing the Wartime Sisters, the very first thing I wrote was a prologue. I think I like writing prologues because it kind of like when you start trying to write a story, it's really hard to jump in and write it. So I'm constantly writing these prologues. I have like prologues and prologues and then I cut them all and they don't ever end up in anything. But it's like a way in. And so when I was first thinking about this story, I was thinking about, you know, there were all these women who worked at the armory. But then the war ended and they all lost their jobs and they all had to leave. And so when I first was writing and thinking about it, I was thinking that I was going to have this character who was going to be a grandmother and she was going to have worked at the armory. This was back when it was really going to be a sister story. She was going to have worked at the armory. But it started with her kind of like waking up in the middle of the night just with that muscle memory, kind of like just putting triggers together in her sleep, which I sort of put a little bit into the book when Millie does that, when Millie's having nightmares. But that idea of like what was it like for all these women when they got let go and they lost their jobs and they had been doing these things and they had this sense of purpose and then it was taken from them. So that was that character, but she didn't make it into the final. <laughs> she didn't make it in the final, in the final cut. So, <laughs> anyone else? Just the comment that the Mimi character, the mom who was controlling, yeah. the um, sister-in-law who came over to take care of the the children, her nephews after the sister-in-law had died, mm -hmm. and um, the jabber jabber on um, the armory. Grace, 
great. Yeah, yeah, the meaty one. Yeah, like like I'm glad those characters were there because it kind of like framed all their lives. But I'm so yeah. glad that they didn't you didn't give them overtime. Yeah. Either. Like they just had their place, so yeah. it wasn't like that big conflict. Well, it's, although it was for the sisters with the mother. Yeah, yeah. Grace was a fun one to write because she's, yeah. you know, she's she was she was a fun one to kind of put in there. Yeah, and she was actually named after a girl who was really mean to my daughter in elementary school. There was this girl, there was this girl named Grace who was really mean to my daughter, and um, it's just funny. Like, I always thought, like, well, to have the name Grace attached to a mean character is like a fun kind of ironic thing. So I liked that part. You can always play little tricks like that. So it was fun to do. <laughs> Sorry, did you have? Yeah, I just was wondering what your writing routine is. I mean, do you, how much time do you put in every day? It really depends. Now I'm really wanting to finish this next book. So I try to write for four or five hours every day. You know, I'm kind of old now. Like my kids are old. You know, one is in school and one is in college. And then my son, he doesn't really need me so much. You know, he's at school all day and he stays after school late and he has homeworks. But I kind of write throughout the day. I, I definitely write best in the morning, I find. But Sometimes I just have other things to do. So I, I just kind of get it done when I get it done. When I'm really in it, when I'm really in it, and I'm really in it right now with the next story, I can kind of write all times of the day. My computer's just on. It just sits in my kitchen at the table. You know, I'm just, I'll cook dinner and I'll, if I think of something, I'll write a paragraph. So it's just kind of there. But I, I try to do it in the morning. The bus for school leaves at 7. My son's on the bus at 7, and then I go inside. And aside from taking out the dog and dealing with my puppy, like, you know, I'm sitting there until 12 and not really moving in my pajamas most of the time. <laughs> it's not pretty. It's really not pretty. That's why I say I don't really get out very much. I just, so. Come on, Mom. Mom, ask a question. <laughs> Can't be yeah. shy. How did you have me? <laughs> Here, like, what, what do your kids and family think of you having turned out two wonderful books? That is a nice thing to say. Um, you know what? It's been good because I was a lawyer and then I worked part-time and then I was a legal recruiter for a while. But for many years, I wasn't really doing any work other than taking care of my kids, and that was a lot of work. But as my daughter got older, and my son too, I started to feel like maybe that was a mistake that I had given up my work. And, you know, you get to that. There's always a point, I think, when you're a mom where you kind of feel like not appreciated and you feel like everyone, like I, I was too available all the time for all things. So like, I don't really want to be getting the call to bring like the instrument to school. And if I had been working, I could have said no. But since I was just at home, I could say yes. And so I did say yes way too much. So I'm a lot less available now, which is really good for everyone. But it was good. They're, they're proud of me. I mean, my husband has always been a great supporter, so that was not an issue. But for my children, it was an issue for me. And so I am very happy that I have this. And I'm going to Boston to speak next week, and my daughter is in school in Boston. She's, like, bringing her friends. And she's, she's like, she wants to come, and she's proud of me. And that here she is killing herself at school, and I want her to have a career. And I know when I gave up practicing law, my mom was really mad at me. She was really mad at me. And she thought that it was like this giant waste of education, and she was very upset with me for stopping. And I don't want to ever be upset with my daughter, no matter what choices she makes, but I want to set an example that she can have a career that she really loves. So I'm happy that I I really love this now, and I feel like I'm, I feel very lucky that I found something that I like to do, that I can do, that anybody like you all came out like on a Monday night to come and hear me talk. <laughs> so that's pretty amazing. So I feel, you know, I'm proud of myself, I think, and that makes her proud of me, and that's a good thing, especially if you have a daughter, I think. For my son, too, but there's something about me and her and all this that has been good. Other questions? Thanks, guys. Thanks. Now we should do the signing. Everyone can talk to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now that was fun, wasn't it? I'd like to thank everybody at the Kloster Library for welcoming Linda Cohen Leugman and I for their Meet the Author series, especially Maida Bosco, who set the whole thing up, and to all the people who came out on a Monday night to hear us talk about two great books. 
Again, those books are The Wartime Sisters and her debut, now in paperback, The Two Family House. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate via the Amazon banner at the top of our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra clicks, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. And by the way, Amazon isn't the only place to find great books. I mentioned how libraries are still relevant and useful on the eve of the third decade of the 21st century. Well, so are independent bookstores like Books and Greetings in Northvale, New Jersey. Kenny, the owner, was so kind to make sure the books got there for Linda Cohen Leugman's guests. And as nice as it is to get that box from Amazon and your book all bubble wrapped in two days with free prime shipping, it's also great to just go and browse, be it at a bookstore or at a library. You never know what you might find. I had so much fun with Linda Cohen Leugman, and I really want to thank her for all of the energy that she brought to discussing both books. You can visit our guest online at lindacohenleugman.com, follow her at Linda C. Leugman on Twitter, or toss a like to her author Facebook page. Her name again is Linda with a Y, like Linda Carter. And her last name is spelled L-O-I-G-M-A-N. And while you're online, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, on Instagram at The History Author Show, or at Facebook.com slash History Author. And you can check out the Cluster Library's website for their Meet the Author series, or maybe find one in your own area. That's it for this live installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. And then came the day Broadway wasn't prepared When the newsboys yelled extra, war is declared But the hand that held glasses Wine in the air were the first to hold guns when I rode over there. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.